Well, what is the last best gift that you ever received? We're all getting into the Christmas spirit, right? Some people it starts earlier than others. We always have a a hot debate in our home as to when we're allowed to start playing Christmas music. Some people it starts as early as June, July, <laughs> August, and uh, once, we, uh, once we cross the uh, Thanksgiving threshold, there's just no turning back. I mean, it's just full-on Christmas uh, all day. <clears throat> but it is the season of giving, right? Um, people talk about getting into the Christmas spirit, season of giving, Anticipation, excitement, both food and gifts are now on everyone's shopping list. But what was the last best gift that you received? And what did you do when you received it? Undoubtedly, you knew what it was when you saw it, but then again, there are some gifts that we don't fully comprehend until after we've used it for a while. A sweater you wear, a book you read, A tool, however, depending on the tool, you may not have immediate use for it. But over time, you get to know a number of different ways that you can use it. As strange as this may sound for a gift, a gym membership may at first seem to suggest something of what the person thinks about your fitness level. (laughs) But careful use over time does yield multiple benefits. My point is that there are some gifts that are given which truly do keep on giving. The use and benefit of those kinds of gifts are not easily apparent at first, but become apparent over time and with careful use. So it is with the gift of God. In John 4, Jesus said to the woman at the well in reference to himself, if you knew the gift of God. Jesus is the gift of God to the world. He has been given to the world as a gift of grace from the God who is a holy judge. He has been given to the world as a gift of mercy from the God who sees all of our sin. He has been given to the world as a gift of love by the God who has been largely rejected by mankind. Jesus is the gift of God. Over the next Four weeks, I'd like to explore that truth by looking at a number of different aspects of who Jesus is and why he was sent from God as testified in the Gospel of John. Now, we're not going to be going straight through the Gospel of John. I will be looking at selected texts, but we'll be doing that as we approach the celebration of the birth of Christ, thinking about him as the gift of God. This morning, we'll take a look at the prologue to John's gospel, the first words to John's gospel that introduce the letter and which introduce us to the person of Jesus. In John 1, Jesus is referred to as the word of God. He is the word of God made flesh. The gift of God, in other words, is the gift of his word. If you haven't turned to first, not first John, to the gospel of John, go ahead and turn there. Chapter 1, we'll read together from verses 1 through 18, and then we'll pray and look more in depth at the text. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not by blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made him known. Father, thank you again for your word. Your word is indeed true. Your word makes you known to us. Your word sanctifies us. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Christ's name, amen. In this text, we'll see that Jesus Christ, the word of God, is the gift of God to humanity. He is the gift of God to humanity as he is, in verses 1 through 3, the means of creation for all. He is the gift of God to humanity as he is the source of salvation for some, in verses 4 through 13. Third, he is the gift of God to creation as he is the fullness of the revelation of God, in verses 14 through 18. He is the means of creation for all, the source of salvation for some, and the fullness of the revelation of God. Well, let's take a look at that first point, that he is the means of creation for all. Look again at verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made again the word of God is a means by which God made all things in the beginning that very familiar phrase in the beginning is there in order to hearken back to take us back to the very beginning of Genesis 1 we read that text earlier and Genesis 1 1 says that very plainly in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth Now we know that in the beginning is not the beginning of God because that would mean that God was also created. He could not create himself. That's nonsense. God would have had to exist before all things in order to be there in the beginning, right? It's illogical to think that there could have been nothing in the beginning because if there were nothing in the beginning, there would be what? Nothing still because nothing comes from nothing. You can't have something come from nothing because there's nothing to have the something. So there has to be something in the beginning in order for there to be anything now. The fact that there is something now means that there was something in the beginning and that something that was in the beginning, the uncaused cause of all things, is God. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 assumes that that is true. It assumes that we understand that. That we know that that is true. God is the self-existent, self-sufficient being who created all other things. Now what is different in our text in John 1 is that the emphasis is not simply on God but rather on his word. Again, our text says, not in the beginning God created. Our text says, in the beginning was the word. The word of God is eternal, just as God himself is eternal. The word of God predates time, if you can say that. His word was in the beginning in the same way that God was in the beginning in Genesis 1. Before anything else was made, the word was there. He moves on. 
in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Here John makes a distinction between God and the word. There's clearly a relationship between the two. It is the word of God. He was there in the beginning with God. And yet they are distinct. The word was with God. The word of God is eternal and coexistent with God. John continues, the word in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now the text does not say the word was the God. The text does not say the word was a God as Jehovah's Witnesses would teach. The text says that the word was God. The word is truly God. He is of the same essence as God. There is no essential difference between God and the word. (coughs) These truths help to express the framework for the doctrine of the Trinity. There are only two members of the Trinity expressed here, but the point is still the same. God exists in eternal fellowship with his word. Verse 2 is there for emphasis. He was in the beginning with God. And we've already said that. What verse 2 does is it gives us a little bit more of an indication as to who we're talking about when we refer to the word. He was in the beginning with God. The word is given a personal pronoun, he. That's not accidental. It's to stress his personhood. The word is not an inanimate object or force, in other words. He has personhood. The word of God has personhood and he has a role to play in the creation of all things in the beginning. Look at verse three. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. This is stated negatively and positively. Positively, all things were made through him. Negatively, without him was not anything made that was made. All things, everything was made through the word of God. There's nothing that existed in the beginning that was not made through the word of God. All things owe their existence to God, the word, for in the beginning, all things were made through him. New Testament writers underscored this truth and they took it a step further in thinking about the person of the word of God and thinking about the person of Jesus Christ the son of God Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 as he's thinking about Jesus the son Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 he the son of God the Lord Jesus Christ is the invisible God the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him the son of God is the one through whom all things were made. And again, Paul takes it a step further. He says in verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, Hebrews chapter one, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What is the point? The point is that the one who created all things in the beginning is also the one who sustains all things today. And if he created all things in the beginning and he sustains all things today, do you think he can take care of you? I like this quote. There are about 100 billion stars in the average galaxy. And there are at least 100 million galaxies in known space. 
Einstein believed that we have scanned with our largest telescopes only one billionth of theoretical space. This means that there are probably something like 10 octillion stars in space. An octillion is a 10 with 27 zeros behind it. And Jesus created them all. Not only is he the creator of the macrocosm of the universe, but also of the microcosm of the inner universe of the atom. The text of Colossians explains he holds the atom and its inner and outer universe together. Quote, in him all things hold together. And he concludes this way. We can trust such a God with everything. Because he is creator, he knows just what his creation and his people need. End quote. There are so many in the world today trying to silence God, stopping their ears to his word, when in reality what we need the most is to hear from the one who created all things and sustains all things. It is his power, his wisdom that we need the most. We need the guidance of the word of our creator God to show us the way. The word of God is still speaking life-sustaining truth into the world. Are you listening? <clears throat> Back to our text. John takes a bit of a detour in the use of the title the word of God in our text. He'll pick back up with reference to the word in verse 14. He's still talking about the same person, but he uses a slightly different title and looks at it from a different perspective. In verse four, the detour explains a bit more about the relationship of the word, not to God, not to creation in general, but to humanity in particular. That brings us to our second point. The word of God is the source of salvation for some. We see that in verses four through 13. Look with me. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There's life in the word. Look at verse 4 again. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him, in the word, was life. This connects the previous section and description of the word of God to what he's about to say. In him, in the one we just referenced, in the pre-existent, co-existent person of the word, in him was life. And that life was in him the light of men. Life and light are significant themes in the Gospel of John. In fact, concerning life, John will say later in this letter that he wrote for a very specific purpose. In chapter 20, verse 31, he says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The term life shows some 36 times in the letter of the Gospel of John in reference to the life that Jesus gives to those who believe in his name. Concerning the term light, it shows up five times in this section alone. In the rest of the letter, there are three times that he referenced the light in chapter 3 where Jesus states that though the light came into the world, he says there are people who love the darkness rather than the light because their, their deeds were evil. In John 5.35, John the Baptist is referred to having a kind of light. Again, he's not the true light, as it says in chapter 1, verse 9, but he was a kind of light that bore witness to the light. In chapters 8 and 9, Jesus states plainly, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Light signifies the nature of the life that he gives. The life that the word of God possesses in himself is a life that brings light in darkness. It gives clarity and guidance. It dispels the evil of darkness. It exposes the evil of darkness. Apart from this light, there is no clarity. There is no guidance. 
There is no help. There is no true life for men. This is further clarified in the text in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When the light shines, it cannot be overcome by the darkness. That, beloved, is a statement of hope, by the way. Darkness is another significant theme in John's Gospels, John's writings. We live in a world filled with darkness. Again, John 3.19, people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. They shun the light. They flee from the light. They reject the light precisely because they love their evil deeds. And they know that if they get too close to the light, their evil deeds will be exposed. We wonder sometimes why people reject the offer of the gospel. I mean, why would anyone reject the offer of a savior who gave himself up for them to save them from their sins, to save them from God's righteous anger about their sin? Why would anybody reject that? I mean, they come up with all kinds of excuses, right? The Bible is an old book. Why would you listen to that? Jesus was a good man, but he's not divine. You can't believe in him. No rational person would believe in those so-called miracles which science has clearly proven are false. The God of the Bible cannot exist if there's evil in this world. I have suffered evil, therefore he cannot be real. Whatever excuses they may throw at you, the reality is that none of them want to face the fact that if God is real, then they will have to give an account to him. Their deeds will be exposed by his light and they don't want that. They'd rather continue on living as if their opinion is the only one that matters when it comes to their life. The darkness is more appealing because it lets us hide in our sin, but darkness will never overcome the light. That is really the hope that we have. It is a hope that we have for ourselves as we struggle with the darkness, as we sometimes seek the darkness to cover our sins, our secret sins, the sins that have not yet been sanctified in our lives. Our hope is not in our ability to do better, but in God's ability to overcome the darkness. And we find hope in passages like Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, where it refers to Jesus and it calls him there our great high priest as it references the sacrifice that he made for us. He says there, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That is our hope, that the light will overcome the darkness, even the darkness that is in us. That as we cling to Jesus, as we seek the face of Jesus, our great high priest, that he is able to wipe out the darkness that seeks to take over our hearts. That the light overwhelms the darkness is also the hope that we have for others. Those for whom we've prayed repeatedly that they might see the light, that they might come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't lose heart at their hostility against the word of God. We don't hope in our ability to proclaim the message better, but we hope in Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. He's talking about his ministry of preaching the word. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, he says. And then in verse 6, this is the reason why we don't lose heart. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Again, he's thinking about creation as well. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul said once of himself, Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost of all. And so his point is that if God can save a dirty, rotten, stinking sinner like me, he can save anyone. No matter how dark it may look, no matter how dark their minds may be, no matter how dark their deeds may be, God is able to save through the Lord Jesus. 
so we don't lose heart. There is life in the word, that life is as light for mankind, that life had a witness who was sent ahead to testify to his coming. And we see that in verses 6 through 9. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but again, came to bear witness about the light. This man named John, who we know as John the Baptist, had a job. He had one role. His role was to bear witness about the light that was coming. The word witness is used three times in these few verses. That was for emphasis. In fact, the text text says that he was sent from God. God sent John. John's life was not haphazard. It was not accidental. John was sent by God for this specific purpose, to be a witness to the light that was coming. He was sent to prepare humanity for the coming of the light so that through his ministry, others might believe in the light. Look at verse 15. It says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. This is John bearing witness to the light. Verse 26, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to tie. Verse 29, the next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. God in his mercy desired for the light to be known by men. Thus he sent a man to make known the coming of the light. He sent John the Baptist to point others to the light, and that is what he did. He said, the one who comes after me ranks before me. The one who is coming, I'm not worthy to untie his sandal. The one who is coming is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one upon whom the Spirit of God rested like the dove. He is the Son of God. John's ministry is similar to our ministry. We are not the light in and of ourselves. We are called to bear witness to the light, to point others to the light. We are called to decrease so that he may increase. As you consider the Advent this year, as you consider celebrating the coming of Jesus, think of yourself as a witness in the long line of witnesses like John the Baptist. Your job is simply to point to the light. The world is full of darkness. It is not our job to despair about the darkness or to complain about the darkness or to grow discouraged And shrink away from the darkness. It is our job to point to the light that has come to give life to every man. Again, there's life in the word. That life is a light for mankind. That light had a witness going before him. The life that is in the word, which is as light for mankind, was sent into the world so that all who believe in him would have his light in them so that he would give them new life. Look at verses 9 through 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his people, his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In these few short verses is the story of salvation. If you want a section to memorize out of this whole chapter, this would be a good one. If you've never heard the gospel before or want to provide a summary statement of the gospel to someone else, these verses would be it. The story of the gospel is that though the world is full of darkness, God has sent light into the world. This true light came into the world in order to give light to everyone else. That was his purpose. That was his intent, his desire. The sad irony of the gospel 
is that this true light is the source of life for all light, life on planet Earth. He is the one through whom the world was made. And yet when he came, no one knew who he was. The world was made through him, but the world did not know him. He also went to his own, meaning to his people, to the people through whom he was born, to Israel, and his own people did not receive him. The world did not know him. His people did not know him. They did not recognize the light because they were walking in darkness and their deeds were evil. And they loved the darkness rather than the light. But, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The story of the gospel is that God has sent his true light into the world so that those walking in darkness may see. To all who receive him, meaning believing in his name, to all who received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. In John's gospel, to receive the true light is to believe in the true light. Receiving and believing are synonymous. Faith is the only right human response to the coming of the light. Faith is the only legitimate human action involved in the equation of redemption. He, the true light, is the one who gives to those who believe the right to become children of God. He alone has the authority to do so. He is the source of salvation to all who believe, and there is no other. Jesus prayed in John 17, And he clearly stated in reference to himself as the son of God, he says, you have given him, meaning the son of God himself, you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the heart of the gospel, to know God and Jesus Christ. That's what it means to have eternal life, to know God and to know Jesus Christ. Do you know him this morning? Do you have eternal life? Have you trusted in the one who was sent as the light into the world? Back to our text, how does he provide this salvation, this new life, this light we've been discussing? He does so by means of the new birth. He says in verse 13, these those who have received him, these were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To be a child of God, you must believe in the one who is the true light. If you believe in the one who is the true light, he gives you the right to become children of God. He gives you a new birth. He makes you a new creation. Again, thinking back to his work of creating in the beginning, he's still doing the work of creating through faith in himself. You are born again or literally born from above, as Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3. In our text, John elaborates by telling us what the new birth is not. One is born again, not of blood, meaning not of human origin. Your first birth yielded none of the life of God. In John's theology, all men are born walking about in darkness. We inherited that from Adam as he fell into sin. That natural life is fallen life. It's an earthly life. It is not a life from above. He goes on, nor by the will of the flesh, not by human exertion. It's not by human effort. It's not by human desire. You cannot work to accomplish this new birth. If you were walking about in darkness, it doesn't matter how well you go about walking in darkness. You'll never see where you're going and you'll never achieve light. You'll never manufacture it on your own. Finally, he says, it's not by the will of man. It is not human by human intuition. Men are not the author of their own destiny. Men do not control their own fate. Men have no authority over the new birth. It is all a work of God. God is the giver of the new birth. Just as a child has no part in their first birth, so the children of God have no part in their new birth. It is all of him. The new birth is at the center of God's work of salvation. The new birth is paid for by the blood of Jesus. Again, from Ephesians, as we've been going through, we learn that he himself is our peace. He brings peace between us and God by the blood of his cross. He died on the cross to pay the penalty that we owe for our sin. We who walk about in darkness, who cling to the darkness because we love our sin, we who deserve his full judgment receive pardon because of the death of Jesus on the cross. We are given new life 
a new birth, a birth from above with this pardon. We are given the right to become children of God by him. We owe this new life to him, to Jesus Christ, to the word of God. He was there in the beginning. He is the eternal, coexistent, divine, life-giving word of God. He alone is the source of salvation for any and all who believe. Again, the word of God is still speaking new life into the world through the gospel. Have you trusted in him? Those of you who have trusted in him, do you continue to bear witness to his light with the confidence of Paul in Romans chapter 1 verse 16? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to save those who believe. Do you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ with that confidence? That it goes forth in power because the eternal word of God is able to save those who believe. Word of God is the means of creation for all. The word of God is the source of salvation for some, for those who believe. Finally, the word of God is the fullness of the revelation of God. Look at verses 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom he said, of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Much of what we learned so far about the word has to do with God's creative and redemptive acts in the world and particularly towards mankind. These last five verses set his creative and redemptive work in its proper context. God has not created and redeemed mankind merely so that much would be made of us. The work of the word is found not only in the light of the life that he gives to man, but also in the light that he brings to the life of God. The word of God came to reveal the character of God, to make him known. Again, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Of all the mysteries of creation, of all the mysteries of redemption, this one outshines them all. In fact, all of creation, the purpose and intent of God in creation, and all of redemption, the purpose and intent of God in redemption, hinges on this phrase, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The God, the word, who is eternal, coexistent with God, truly God, The person who is the word through whom all things were made, in whom is life, whose life is light for men, whose light cannot be overwhelmed by darkness. This same word who came into the world as light with the authority to make those who believe in him children of God, this word would never diminish in his essential glory. He is still the eternal, coexistent, divine, living word of God. Yet he didn't come with an external show of glory, as you might expect from someone who is a king, who is a ruler, who is a creator, who is over all. Instead, he humbled himself by taking on flesh. We can learn something from this. Paul reflects on this truth in Philippians chapter 2 and encourages us likewise to be humble He says there have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the ultimate act of humility. The God who deserves praise from angels in all of his the created order has instead condescended by taking on the form of humanity, taking on human flesh. Truly God, he became truly man. And he endured in the flesh even to the point of death, death on a cross. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. He became as we are, 
as we said earlier from the legendary statement again truly God he became truly man he took on human flesh and dwelt among us lived among us made his abode among us us humanity those walking in darkness those who could not even understand when he was here that he is the one who created us we couldn't see it we didn't understand it we didn't know it we didn't recognize him what shame And even today, people don't recognize him. The word of God, the one who created all things, you owe your life to him. He should wipe each and every one of us out. Yet we thumb our noses at him daily. He condescended. He took on weak, frail human flesh. I've had this pain in my back for the past week and a half. And I don't know where it's coming from. And it's driving me crazy. And I'm like, Lord, you took on human flesh like this weak, frail mess. The mess of who we are. You think about that? Jesus, the Lord of glory, took on human flesh for us. His glory was veiled. He deserves so much more. Nevertheless, we did get to see his glory in part. Again, verse 14, we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Even having condescended in the flesh and human flesh, truly God also became truly man. His glory didn't resonate like the Shekinah glory that filled the temple. His glory didn't resonate as the brilliantly bright light which shone from the throne that Isaiah saw. That same light that caused angels who attended to him to burn in reflection of that glory. Instead, his glory was revealed through his character, through both his work and his words. His work and his words were full of grace and truth. This is the glory of the only son from the father. We have the phrase chip off the old block. We frequently use that term in reference to a child who's just like their parent. The word of God made flesh came to us as a son. He came to us as the son of his father in heaven. All of who he was as the word of God made flesh. All of what he did, he did as an expression of obedience to his father and an imitation of his father. John chapter five, Jesus said to them, verse 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does, the son does likewise for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel for as the father raises the dead and gives them life so also the son gives life to whom he will the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him truly truly i say to you whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. Whereas the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. The father loves the son. And he has given everything to the son. He has given life to the son. And he has given the son authority to give life to whomever he wills. He has given judgment to the son. And he has given authority to the son to judge however he wills. And the son perfectly obeys. The son perfectly imitates what he sees the father is doing. Those to whom he desires to show his grace, he gives grace. Those who need to know the truth of who he is, he displays his truth. 
all of who Jesus was, all of what he did, all of what he did as the word of God made flesh, he did in imitation of his father. And again, it's summed up in those two words, grace and truth. We remember the Lord's words to Moses in Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and truth. Moses said, show me your glory. And God said, this is who I am. I am a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and truth, grace and truth. So the son came in order to reveal the truth of who the father is. And the son came filled with grace and truth. So much so that Philip asked Jesus in John 14, Lord, show us the father. And Jesus' incredulous response, have I been with you for so long that you do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John says it this way, we beheld his glory. We saw it. That's John's testimony. John, the apostle's testimony. We beheld his glory. Just as he says in 1 John chapter 1 that we read earlier, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, we looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He says, we saw him. We lived with him. We walked with him. We heard him. We were there with Jesus. He is the word of life. And we proclaim this truth to you. We saw his glory. And again, John the Baptist's testimony. John quotes in verse 15 of our text. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John the Baptist acknowledges God's eternal word and the greatness of his eternal son. The word made flesh reveals the glory of the father. He reveals that the father is full of grace and truth. He reveals this through his works and his words. John confirms this fact in the next couple of verses again. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The son is full of grace and truth. He is the eternal son of God, even as he is the eternal coexistent divine life giving word of God. Just as the father is full of grace and truth, so the son is full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, out of the abundance of his fullness, out of the unfathomable well of his fullness, this same group as we read about in verse 12, those who received him, who believed in his name, who were given the right to become children of God, who were born of God, this This group has received grace upon grace, grace in place of grace, grace after grace after grace. I like the way Martin Luther refers to this passage. He says the sun is not dimmed or darkened by shining on so many people or by providing the entire world with its light and splendor. It retains its light intact. It loses nothing. It is immeasurable, perhaps able to illumine 10 more worlds. I suppose that 100,000 candles can be ignited from one light, and this, and still this light will not lose any of its brilliance. Thus Christ our Lord, to whom we must flee, and of whom we must ask all, is an interminable well, the chief source of all grace. Even if the whole world were to draw from this fountain enough grace and truth, transform all people into angels, Still, it would not lose as much as a drop. This fountain constantly overflows with sheer grace. I think that's a beautiful way to describe it. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus, is full of grace. Again, the law was given through Moses. That was a way of knowing and relating to God in a technical, official capacity, but that's not the end of the story. Though the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I think we have to understand the concepts of grace and truth here in the context of Revelation. God is revealing himself to humanity through his son as a God of grace and truth. The grace of God in our salvation and our redemption and the new birth, the new life, the light, which is the light of men and truth. 
the truth of who God is, the truth of how we can relate to him, how we can know him as father. Both grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. This is the first time the name of Jesus is mentioned in the text. John has been building up to this truth all along. He wanted for us to have a profile, a picture of this Jesus character. Remember the purpose of the letter in John 20, 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John beckons us to believe in him. Jesus is the eternal, coexistent, divine, creating, life-giving word of God, the one who is full of grace and truth. This is who he is. Believe in him. He came to make the Father known to us. To help us to have a relationship with him. Why do we celebrate the word made flesh? Why do we emphasize Christmas as Christians? Why when so much has been commercialized, so much misunderstood, so much speculation and misdirection, why bother? It's because the word of God made flesh is evidence that God is still speaks. God is speaking and what he has to say is very simple. I desire, I deserve to be made known and worshiped by all. I am a God full of grace and truth. And I deserve to be known and worshipped by all. And the only way you can know me is through my son, the word made flesh. Are you worshipping him? Have you come to worship and adore him? Is that why you're here? As you think about Christmas this year, are you thinking about the stuff, the festivities, perhaps other people? Again, people talk about the true meaning of Christmas. And what they usually mean is that you should have a spirit of giving, kindness, and love. But the true meaning of Christmas is that the creator God desires to redeem for himself a people to know, love, and worship him above all other things. God is speaking. He is speaking in his son. He is not silent. He desires to be known by us. He makes that possible through his word, the eternal word of God made flesh, our redeemer, the one full of grace and truth, the light of the world, our Lord Jesus Christ. As you meditate on the word of God made flesh during this Advent season, may the Lord help you to pause and say thank you to the one who has given us the gift of himself. To the God who has made himself known to us in the person of his son, the eternal word of God. And may our hearts be filled with the greatness of his glory. And may our lips be filled with his praise. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word, which is true. Your word, which sanctifies us. Thank you for the blessing that it is to know you in truth. Through your son, the Lord Jesus, who is creator, redeemer, and the one who perfectly and fully reveals all of who you are. Father, may we not become confused as we approach the Christmas season. May we not give ourselves over to lesser concerns, to focusing on lesser things. But may our hearts be filled with praise. Praise for your eternal word made flesh. Your eternal word made flesh who gives life, light to those who come to him in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.